Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters with Mark Inc. Ministries, and you are listening to a resource that Mark Inc. Ministries has developed where, again, we offer help and hope to hurting people. And uh, we have with us in the studio today some very special people, and I'm going to ask my wife, Sharon, if she would go ahead and introduce not only the people, but the topic for today, and I know that you're going to be blessed by it. Thank you, Chuck, and welcome to this Help and Hope resource. You can go to markinc.org where you'll find numerous resources that are free, stories that are addressing life crises that are painful and difficult, and, and often that are experienced in isolation. And I feel as though today that's, that's a topic that we're going to be talking about, a life crisis that is uh, a very private one at times and yet uh, can create havoc in a person's life. And so I have in the studio today is Heidi Scott and her friend, Gail Stewart. And I'd like, Heidi, for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. I am the owner of Morningstar Counseling in Quarryville, Pennsylvania, which is a small counseling practice in a rural setting. And we deal with all different kinds of a variety of mental health issues. In any private practice, you're going to get the balk is going to be depression or anxiety. And what we're going to be talking about today is an anxiety-related disorder. So certainly in my practice over 25 years, I've dealt with a lot of people that have struggled with this particular issue that we're talking about today. Great. Thank you. And Gail, how about if you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Gail. I am um, 53 years old, almost actually this month. I'm married and we have two grown sons. One is married and he just had our first grandchild, a little grand girl. And I am a nurse and have been a nurse for um, thir- over 30 years. Well, I can relate to the grand girl. <laughs> Grandchildren, that's the top priority in my life right now. So welcome. We're glad you're here today, Gail. Um, Heidi, why don't you uh, explain a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. It's OCD. And frankly, I don't know a whole lot about that. Um, I did a little bit of research, but I think I'd like to hear from you. What is OCD and how prevalent is that? Sure. I'm really glad that you've um, chosen to take this topic on because it's a difficult one, but it really is something that we see quite a bit of. And so OCD stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. It's really best described by kind of explaining those those two components. The obsessions are the thoughts. They can be intrusive, repetitive kinds of thoughts that get stuck in your head. And that's probably the best way that I can describe it. And I use that as I'm working with clients. Who can are you give an example of what that would be? Like something Well, very kind specific. of the classic example of OCD is the germophobia kind of thing, right? Where, you know, someone's out at the grocery store or out doing anything and they are preoccupied with thoughts about having contamination on their hands or whatever. So... The other piece of it is the compulsion, which is the behavior. So in order to alleviate the anxiety that they feel about the contamination, for example, they compulsively wash their hands. So that's kind of the classic example, but it really is comprised of those two pieces. Intrusive thoughts, obsessions, things that get stuck, and then the behavior uh, in most cases, not in all cases, but in most cases, there is a behavior that is associated with it to alleviate the anxiety. Uh, the other thing that I'll say about it, sometimes people have a sense that what they are, the anxiety they're feeling is distorted and it's they really shouldn't be worried about it. In other words, they kind of know that there is a real threat here, 
but in some cases they don't. So there's really, you can have OCD and have either be sort of knowledgeable and, and have that insight that, that they are in some ways distorting it and some people don't. So what causes it? Well, there is definitely a genetic component to it. So that's probably the biggest thing. That's the shortest answer to it, that often what we see in someone's family history is there's somebody that either has uh, OCD itself or some other anxiety disorder. Um, there's a comorbidity or another term for that is just an, another diagnosis that goes alongside of it sometimes of things like tick disorders, certainly generalized anxiety disorders, which is more of just your typical worrier. Um, so there are some other things that will go alongside of it. Um, there's also a theory that there's it's a bit of a learned behavior, too. So it is both genetic and learned, um, learned as a way of coping with anxiety and things like that. The only other thing that I'll comment on is there's a medical issue, PANDAS, which is an autoimmune, Gail could probably speak to that even better than I could, but it's an autoimmune disorder, and the body's reaction to that sometimes causes OCD symptoms. So there might be another medical cause, too, that causes some neurological issue. But, but yeah, uh, genetic and learned. It sounds to me like what we're talking about is an ocean of a topic. That it is. Yeah. So one one thing for we want our listeners to know is that one of the purposes of our Help and Hope audio library is to tell stories of one person's journey. So we know that in this topic, this is one person's journey, even though there'll be some generalizations and some things that you've offered already, that's great. But we want people to understand that what you're listening to is one person's journey in struggling with OCD. And so it could be very different in another person's, there could be some things that are exactly the same, but there are other things that could be totally different. So there's freedom there as we talk about this. Why is it that counselors seem to miss this diagnosis? Well, just as you were saying, OCD looks very different in different people. And I think because there are so many different variations of OCD uh, that it is often missed. And I think when you hear Gail's story, I can maybe elaborate on that a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, it's certainly, it, for some people, there's there's no fear of contamination. And it's really more heavy on the obsessive side. So we, we can talk about that list of the many different kinds. And then I think maybe you'll understand that a little bit better. So is there an effective treatment for OCD? Yeah, I want to say that there really is. I, I do believe um, that medication certainly plays a part in that. A lot of people find help with that. But I think if you can couple it with cognitive behavioral therapy, too, in a counseling setting, it's uh, probably the best way because both can be effective. And so why not kind of throw everything at it? And then I have plenty of clients that don't want to go the medication route and they want to try therapy first. And some people have really good success with that without having medication. So it's really individualistic. But yes, I think uh, you really can see once it's identified, and that can be the tricky part. Once it's identified, I think you really can make some progress in minimizing the symptoms. As many mental health issues, I would say often it doesn't ever 
completely go away. It kind of is always there. It kind of follows you around. You can feel it kind of tugging at you here and there, but you've learned how to push it down and it becomes just this minor annoyance versus something that really has control over your life. Gail, when you and I talked, what really intrigued me and compelled me to to try to make this happen, this interview happen, was so many of the things that you described, I think many women struggle with. Um, they may not, it may not have the same re- root cause, but your efforts to try to control it, to try to get uh, some clarity of thinking. I resonated with much of what you were saying. So I think your story is very important. And I think that uh, our listeners are going to get some insights into their own hearts that could offer the help and hope that we want people to experience. So it's so good to have Heidi here because she's traveled this pathway with you. So I'd like to just hear the two of you talk about your story. Great. Well, I'd be happy to do that. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Gail and what she's experienced. So Gail, if you could tell us uh, when you first remember experiencing what you know now as signs or symptoms of OCD. So that is a question that takes me back to when I was about 13 years old. I specifically remember because it was at that point you alluded to many symptoms of OCD, but one of them is intrusive thinking. And at that age, at 13, a very significant event happened in my life, and I remember having a very dark thought. And that thought was especially scary to me because I was a follower of Jesus from an early time. And so when that thought came into my mind, and it stuck there, I became very scared of it. But I really didn't know what to do with it. The term mental health is now much more used than it was then, and I probably wasn't even aware of it as a young teenager. But I know that it caused me a lot of distress at the time. And I was very good at and enjoyed my life at the time. And so when this interruption came, it was very scary to me as a as a young teenager. And so I didn't really say anything to anyone, but I the fear developed that something was very wrong with me. And again, it happened when I was about 17. I remember specifically another time in my life when this very intrusive type of thinking and very dark thoughts would come to my mind. And again, as a believer in Jesus, I just remember laying on my face, surrendering to him, because that's what I thought was necessary at the time to do. And I wasn't able to express any of these thoughts to anyone except to the Lord, which he absolutely carried me through. But at the time, it was, again, a very, very scary time. I went on through my life periodically, mostly during stressful times, having these thoughts. And again, each time doing what I thought I was supposed to do, and that was to dig into God's Word a little deeper, to pray as much as I could, to seek Bible studies that would very much address all sin issues, but thinking that that was a deep sin issue in my life, and that if I could just do something more, that it would potentially relieve this. So when I became almost an empty nester, uh, the wave hit me so hard 
which I now know it was OCD, with these thoughts uh, that it became a physical issue and I was in the hospital and nothing could be determined that was wrong with me physically. And then that's when I began to think I had depression. But again, it was not a an OCD um, diagnosis at the time. Were the thoughts <clears throat> creating a lot of guilt for you? Absolutely. I, again, didn't really know what to do with the thoughts that I was having. And again, guilt is a big part of, it's a big motivator, I guess I want to say. And um, it was... I don't know how to say it other than, yes, that really impacted me. Yeah. So with Gail, we're going to allow her some privacy in this. But what I can very easily do is give some examples of the type of OCD that Gail struggled with. We talked already about the washing and that kind of thing. Some of the other more common ones is maybe checking locks in your house order and symmetry, organizing your closet, you know, making sure in your pantry all the labels are facing out, little idiosyncrasies like that that are probably more commonly known as OCD. Some people have this compulsion to count and repeat things over and over just as they're going about their daily life. But then there's this whole side of OCD that I often refer to more as thought OCD, which is kind of odd, but it's the technical term for it is scrupulosity, which is heavier on the obsession piece and not so heavy on the compulsion. So it's the thoughts. And these thoughts often are not good thoughts. Often they are sexual in nature or they are thoughts about self-harm or thoughts about harm to other loved ones. A lot of the times there's excessive guilt associated with that. But if it's a person of faith, then there's a lot of doubt then about where they are and, and feeling like they're sinning in their thinking. But that's where it's it can be really tricky. And if somebody doesn't know what they're looking for, they may start making assumptions about that person too. So we can talk about more about that when we're talking about finding help for this. But some clients that I have had have had situations where they have these intrusive thoughts or very disturbing thoughts. And then the compulsion piece of it is that they need to confess that to somebody. So they go and they tell a loved one, um, you know, go and tell a mother, you know, so that that can be a piece of it too. So you can have a little bit of a compulsion. But a lot of these with scrupulosity, it's more just they are struggling in their thought life. Um, like, for instance, having thoughts about harming somebody, they are extremely, as you can imagine, bothered by thoughts of stabbing their loved one. But yet, it really bothers them. And, and so often, what I'll say is, you know, this is OCD, if it bothers you, if you really are homicidal, you don't have any thought about the other person. You, you're not bothered by the thought. You're angry at them or you feel justified or what have you. So these thoughts are very disturbing. And sometimes they're just images that fly in. And then they're thoughts that just stay there and get stuck. So Heidi, what I'm hearing you say is that these thoughts, it's like they come out of nowhere. They're not rooted in a broken relationship or anger or toward another person. That they're, is right. It's, and it's shocking to the person who is having them because it's so outside of their thinking or their character or it's so foreign to them. But what then what do they do with it? 
And so the interpretation you're saying, if, if especially for a person of faith, is, okay, there must be a sin here, and I need to take care of that sin, and that can put you on very fragile ground, I would think. I would say that actually feeds the OCD, because it feeds that thought that, oh, there's something I need to do here. There's something I need to uncover here. There's something I need to look for here. And that is exactly what we sort of say, you know, the OCD wants you to think because it keeps you spinning in that that horrible wheel that you get stuck in. So how how prevalent do you think this is with people? Because to me, this is something that's extremely private. The people are not going to want to talk about. But in your practice and in your experience, how prevalent is this kind of OCD where it's thoughts? I think a lot of people that have anxiety of other kinds, yeah, I do see this a fair amount in my practice. Sometimes it's just nuances of it where predominantly they're more in the the category of generalized anxiety disorder. But then there's another segment that their predominant issue is the obsessive compulsive piece. So it's really difficult to identify and, and even say prevalency, because I think a lot of people have that have anxiety have nuances of it, but may not be full-blown OCD. But yes, it is certainly something that I have on, on my caseload at any given point, a handful of people that are struggling with OCD. And I can see why it's hard to diagnose if you're not sensitive to understanding this, because you would immediately go to, there's something wrong with your heart. You know, you must have something against that person. Let's get to the bottom of it. Yes. So I think a lot of even lay counselors or pastors or anybody that you would go to, if somebody says, you know, I have this fear that my hands are contaminated and I just feel like washing them over and over again, mm-hmm. you know, a pastor or somebody may say, oh, you know, that, that reminds me of that movie with Jack Nicholson, you know, as good as it gets, or, you know, there's there's some familiarity with that piece of it. But it's when somebody has thoughts, if somebody would come in and say something like, I'm having thoughts about these horrible thoughts about cutting up my chest. And, you know, I when I see a knife, I, I, I want to do that. And so some lay counselor may say, oh, well, you may be depressed. You know, you must have something going on underneath that. Where I see it very quickly because of my experience, you know, it, 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 I can see it pretty easily. But you can see how another therapist that is not trained in this or, some, or a lay counselor or pastor uh, or friend, you know, isn't going to easily identify it. Because as you said, some of these things Um, people that don't struggle with OCD can relate to on a small level. The difference is you may have a thought kind of fly through your head, but for somebody with OCD, it gets stuck and it's over and over and they cannot let it go. So it may even seem like something kind of normal, but when you really talk to the person and see how intrusive and how it really is life altering, then you see the OCD. So, Gail, you described childhood, you know, some of these moments in childhood where you were struggling with some thoughts. And then there were these pockets of time where you really didn't have a lot of symptoms. Is that correct? That is correct. Mm -hmm. And then later in adulthood, it kind of reared its ugly head again? Yes, it did. Mm Mm-hmm. And at what point in time do you think you began to see this as a mental health issue? Like, did you seek help at any point in time uh, prior to this? I feel like that is such a good question because, again, growing up in the era, I told you that I'm 53 years old. So growing up in that era, 
and being a uh, a nurse, a medical professional myself, mental health was not always viewed as obviously something you would want to have or be a part of or have an issue with. And so I would say that early on, I was most fearful of having a mental health diagnosis. So that was one of my biggest fears of sharing that with anybody, especially anybody in the church. As time went on, I would say approximately 10 years ago is the first time that I had experience with someone who would be a counselor. That was a type of prayer counseling, which was very beneficial at the time, and I'm very thankful for it. But the counselor that I had certainly did not recognize my symptoms as OCD symptoms. I was being counseled for um, depression-type things and relational type things that were placed back into my early life. And then more recently, with the most recent episode that I had, there were some other counseling issues that, as you alluded to, had me looking deeper and deeper into my own self, which really led to the downward spiral. But that was not a bad thing, because that really led me on this journey of finding out what was wrong here and what could what could the Lord show me in regards to how did he have his arms underneath me? And that began my journey to actually finding you as my current therapist, which was a long journey. Can you describe anything more about just the emotional toll? Like when it was at when you were at your lowest point, can you describe what that was like emotionally for you? Can you give us some of those feelings that you were struggling with? I hate to use the word crisis because this is my experience, and many of you listening have had your own crises, so I don't in any way want to minimize that. But to me, this was at a time that I could not have one single thought at the time that I could make sense of. I could not sleep because of the thoughts I could not eat because of the thoughts. I was able to go to work, but it was very, very challenging and very, very difficult just to basically put one foot in front of the other. That's how much the thoughts impacted me at that time. Was it the thoughts themselves, or was it the guilt that you felt as a result of the thoughts? I would say the thoughts produced the guilt, and that's exactly where I found myself. Or an even more critical time for me was trying to figure out the whys. Mm -hmm. Why was I thinking this way? What could possibly be wrong? What area of my life wasn't I doing right? What type of things? And again, this, as a believer in Jesus, comes to a place where I know he is all about grace. And the fear that I was experiencing because I had the thoughts took me back to the verse that says, do not fear. And it seemed like I was directly disobeying a commandment Mm -hmm. that the Lord said that he would always be there with me and I had nothing to fear. But my mind was in a place that I could not in any way at the time feel like I could logically come to terms with. I'm glad you brought up the whys because that is describes, I think, what a lot of people with OCD get stuck in there. And you can see how that feeds the OCD thought that there must be something here that's terrible. And you can see how it can be very often misdirected. 
But yeah, we do really caution against that why, because what's that doing? That's saying that there's something underneath it that you need to find in order to relieve what's going on. As soon as you can see it for obsessive compulsive disorder and see it in that framework, it all of a sudden has that capacity to really begin to shift. Do you remember that shift for you? It was a gradual shift. It took time. And I would say that I am still working that out because, as you said, I don't like to use the word chronic. I prefer to use the word persistent. But this can be a persistent thing that happens in my life. But I do remember specifically being able to identify a particular thought as an OCD thought. And then with the tools that I had been given, be able to come full circle and kind of stand against that. And faith does have a lot to do with that. In fact, primarily it would. But it was so encouraging to know, I guess this opens another topic, that I wasn't the first person in the world much less in my little town, maybe, that has struggled in this way. Just feeling like you're not alone can make a huge difference. And once you see it within the OCD framework, then it opens you up to like, wow, there's really a name for this. And that can be pretty powerful. Uh, In normalizing, that, that normalization process can just be helpful in and of itself. So was your family doctor involved throughout this? Were you talking to somebody like a family doctor about this? My family doctor is just an incredible physician. He is an incredible practitioner, and maybe somebody listening does not have someone like that in their life, but I am so grateful to say that he was someone who said that it's very important for you to, for me personally, I am on a medication to help me But he also said that the combination of medication and a therapist is the most effective combination. So in my particular case, this is what he directed me to. And I can only say that he was very open to to just discussing this with me and continuing to look for more answers. So yes, he was very, and I feel like that's a really important key to unlock some of these questions that we have to work together with a medical profession and a therapist. I think it must have taken a lot of courage for you to even be open on some level with your family doctor. I think a lot of times we are not real open about mental health issues with our family doctor. So that's great to hear. Tell me about your family's response. You're married. How did your husband respond and how did your family respond with regard to finding out more about this label of obsessive compulsive disorder, or maybe your mental health journey in general? Anytime that you have a mental health issue, or at least in my case, it came along with a lot of shame that came along with the guilt. And I was very concerned about how my family would respond if I would ever be open and honest with them. I hadn't told my husband any of these thoughts, even though I had them from an early on 13-year-old, I never had shared that with him up until we had been married for, well, even just 30 years, some of the things he did not even know, and I carried that with me. So shame has a lot of, of motivation if you feel like you need to keep things to yourself. So I need to say that my husband was 
so supportive in my journey. I think sometimes loved ones can themselves have guilt that maybe they were the cause of your problem or your issue. And that is not the case in my family. My husband actually was a wonderful and is a wonderful support. My children also are excellent support systems, and I have an extended family. So I am so blessed to say that. That being said, I do want to say to people who may not have that in their lives that it is important, and I encourage you to persevere through your own journey to help, that you may not feel like you have the energy to do that, and your thoughts and patterns of thinking may be so difficult, but I would encourage you to seek help in that because there is help, and there is a lot of hope for you in regards to that. But I must say, for my particular family, I just am very grateful for their support. And I can't speak for them as to know what they, what they think about it, but they have been extremely helpful in my journey. I'm so grateful for that. You must have taken a lot of courage to be transparent about it. You it talked did. about the shame that can accompany this. Yes. And so sometimes just being able to be honest and yes. open. Mm-hmm. Our family is growing. And at the time that I was struggling the most, we were looking towards one, my oldest son getting married. And I began to wonder what would his future wife think about all of this that she was getting into. And again, um, and my youngest has a fiance and the same thing. They got to do life with us during a very difficult time. And yet you found them to be very supportive, very understanding, yes. not criticizing. No, not at all. Very kind. That's great. So now, you know, you're, you're at a place where you're, I think you described it as getting better. You could safely say turned a corner, but it's still a struggle day to day at times. Mm-hmm. Um, have you experienced any setbacks or reoccurrences? I have. I had a hiccup about three weeks ago when something very important happened in my life, a very wonderful thing. And that very day, I had an intrusive thought that I could not get rid of. And it's interesting how OCD, from the research that I've done on my own, and from how I've learned from you, it can be a little progressive. And this was something that hadn't necessarily happened to me before, but it had a lot to do with another subset of OCD. And it's a really big field. But again, I was able to stop that pretty quickly in its tracks. It didn't last for a very long time. It felt like a long time, but yes. And that is another fear that I have to be honest and admit that I would be afraid that that could happen in the future. But again, I feel like it's really important to have someone come alongside of you, like you, Heidi, who is able to walk people like me, through that kind of thing. Gail, as I'm listening to you talk about these thoughts and the intrusiveness, and you said you had a setback and you you may have other setbacks, what are some of the practical things that you have learned to do to handle those kinds of thoughts? Some very practical things are uh, remembering what is true. Sometimes that's really hard to do when you're in the midst of it, but going back and remembering what is true is a very important component, I believe, in recovery. And 
Then there are those things like eating well, trying to exercise, trying to get enough sleep. Those very practical things mean a lot, particularly, I think, to everybody. But when you have an episode like that, to focus on what you can do and potentially decrease caffeine, it can really make a difference. I can't say that I'm always um, able to, I shouldn't say able, but I don't always choose to do that. But those are some really practical things. The other thing that I've found is to find a few people that are accountable in your circle that you are accountable to, that I am accountable to. And I am, again, very blessed to have those people in my life that I can go to and let them help me to sort out what is true. And then again, if you don't have a counselor or a therapist or someone, just persevere through that until you find help in that way. And sometimes your pastor can help you find that. Um, Sometimes it can be a real journey. But those are some practical tips that I would give. How do those people that you've chosen to be accountable to, how do they help you? They help by, first of all, there's a comfort level that we've had over the years And they help, again, I think the main thing is pointing me to truth and pointing me back to how can I, how can I really look at this and A, see how this fits into God's plan for my life. And oftentimes just by listening and letting me talk to them and hear my own self, that is, that is very helpful as well. One of the things that helped me in my own personal journey when, uh, as you know, you may know, our son Mark was killed in a car accident when he was 16 years old. And so the grief of that grief journey, as you said, it's always with you, but you learn how to function in, in there and find purpose. A turning point for me was when I realized that my circumstances are a platform for glorifying God, that he would not waste this pain in my life, that he was equipping me. He had equipped me for it, even though I felt that he had abandoned me. You know, I went through all of that of pounding on his chest and not understanding how he could have allowed this in my life. I'm his daughter and, you know, all those things. And you may have had the same kind of feelings as why did he create me this way? But it was an amazing thing for me when actually it was Mary, the mother of Jesus, when I was trying, I thought she lost her son, you know, she can teach me. And her response to that announcement that was going to change her life, that she was going to bear this baby and she was a virgin and all, you know, all that crazy stuff. What was it? It was, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. May it be to me as you have said. And then she said, my soul magnifies him. And it, it was a, a, a profound moment for me to think she, from that moment on, her life was about honoring Christ. And think of what she went through. I mean, her little boy could have been murdered. She, they had to run for their lives. And, and all the horrible things that happened were challenges to her. I don't think she did it perfectly. I think she probably suffered and struggled and cried out to him, Lord, I need you. Help me. Can you see in your own personal life how your journey is a platform for honoring him? And how hard is it? I'm so glad you asked that because that reminds me of a of a thought that would come to my mind often as I was having my deepest questions with the Lord about why did this happen and what purpose could there be in it. 
And I had a period of time where I actually felt disqualified for life. I wasn't in a place of wanting to end my life or didn't feel like there was no there was not a purpose for it, but that somehow I was not qualified. So it was a wonderful thing when he took me to that verse again that said that I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. And so no matter if I'm in the midst of anxiety or if I'm in the midst of a difficulty with my thoughts, he is always there for me and he is always there for whoever is listening in their very deepest, darkest times. And as far as a platform for him, I would say that that was my prayer throughout it, that if there would be any way that he could use my story, as little or as much of it, to share for him, that I would be willing to do that and obey him. And actually, my desire would be to point people to him in this. So I love that you asked that question. And I'm sorry for your experience that you had in your life, but I do love how he makes all things new and can, even in the midst of brokenness and difficulty, change a whole life. And I'm grateful for that. And you know, Gail, one of the things that I don't know whether we would have survived without it were the people ahead of us Mm -hmm. in a grief journey who could call back and say, God is sovereign and you can trust him even in this. And you have people like that in your life who are saying to you, this, you can walk this pathway. You may be walking with a limp, but you can by God's grace. And going back to that mother promise of his presence that I, I will never leave you or forsake you and uh, clinging to that. And I, so I think about people who are struggling with OCD and the counseling and, and you know, Heidi, the practical things of counseling and all of those things that are so critical. It's like, you know, the medication that's going to make your heart stronger that you you need that. But then there's that added element that you have of that faith component of his presence. And his presence is often through prayer and through his word. And so you've mentioned a scripture that he would never leave you or forsake you. Are there other scriptures where you go when you feel especially desperate for that help and hope that he offers to you? Yes, there's, I don't always know what I call the addresses, but there are definitely scriptures. One that says, he will not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And he also says, do not fear for I am with you. I will It comes to say, uphold you with my right hand. I can't remember right this second, but there are so many scriptures and there are so many examples in scripture of people who have struggled as well and went to him and found those promises to be true. I'm so thankful for scripture that we can come to that. And I think uh, something for us to uh, remind our listeners about is that the reason those scriptures are so powerful for us is because of the one who made the promises and because he has proven his love for us 
by sending his son Jesus. One of the passages that has meant so much to me actually is the, the book of Hebrews. And he starts out, the writer of Hebrews starts out writing to these people who are terrified. Their world is falling apart. They're being persecuted. And, you know, it just seems like things are just, they want Jesus, but they don't want all the trouble that goes with having Jesus. And it seems as though he knows the questions that they're asking. Is God sovereign? And he says, yes, God is sovereign. Why won't he speak to me? Have you ever felt that way? You know, why won't he speak to me? I'm crying out to him. He's not answering me. And the writer says, he has spoken. He's spoken through the prophets. You, he's spoken through his word. And he has spoken through his son, Jesus. He sent Jesus. And okay, so God is sovereign. He is speaking to me. Can I trust him? Well, can you trust the God who sent his own only son to people who hate him, who don't deserve him? Yes. And he is the one who is in charge of the universe. If he, if he can be trusted with the universe, he can be trusted with my life. That was my takeaway. And so then when things are falling apart and the world around us is crazy and encouraging us to think these wrong thoughts. What what does he say in, in, I think it's chapter two, he said, yes, when you read the newspaper headlines and it looks like the world is falling apart, but we see Jesus. That is the message that we want that when it comes down to it for us personally is the reason those promises are the truth and that you go to them as you're unwrapping and saying, what is the truth here? The truth is God is with me. The truth is he created me. The truth is he knows what's going on right now in my life and I can trust him. And why can I trust him? Because he sent Jesus. So I can trust him. It's not just words on a page. And that I think is, that's the foundation of, it's kind of like, I should say it's a cherry on the top. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the counseling is, is, working. But then when you have that added element of a personal faith, and, and Heidi, I know that you could speak to that too, with the counseling that you do with people who are faith-based, the difference it makes. Yeah, just here, especially at the end, you were highlighting that aspect of truth. And Gail, you mentioned that too. So from my perspective, one of the scripture passages that I refer to, not just dealing with OCD, but dealing with depression and dealing with anxiety overall, is we are seeking truth. And so I am often pointing people to like passages like Philippians 4 is probably one of the most frequent ones that I, I revisit that, you know, be anxious about nothing. And then it goes on to talk about think on what is true and what is right and lovely and praiseworthy. And so that, you know, as I hear Gail say something like, I felt like I was not qualified for life. I want to scream, you know, although I, I, I don't, but inside I, I just want to scream, this is OCD. This is not you. This is a lie. And so that is, you know, if we could describe anxiety or OCD, it's lies that you're entertaining over and over again. And the guilt is just feeding into that lie. So, yeah, you know, taking captive our thoughts, it really is, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, very heavy, I think, on the cognitive. The behavioral aspect in dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder is really kind of leaning into some of that, that anxiety that these thoughts produce. And we call that gradual exposure, uh, exposure therapy, where you sit in the uncertainty that maybe my hands are contaminated. 
you know, like I explained in the beginning, some people don't really think their hands are contaminated, but there's that uncertainty. And so we really seek them to seek the truth and the likelihood and all of that and sit in that without having to go through the compulsion of washing the hands, just as an example. So so yeah, you both are really mentioning that that pursuit of truth. And so that's why that shift can happen when you see it through the lens of OCD, because then you have the self-talk of constantly reminding yourself, this is OCD. This is a lie. For my clients of faith, we really talk about, well, where is it coming from? If it's not coming from God, where is it coming from? So having that you know, realization that ultimately it comes from Satan gives them that motivation to really fight that lie that keeps flying into their head. One thing that keeps coming into my mind is people that don't understand, you know, that you might share, I have these bad thoughts, uh, and they don't put it in the context of OCD, or the person who's saying, I've got to wash my hands, I've got to wash my hands. What is our natural response? It's going to be, stop it, just stop it, just stop it. And what I'm hearing you say is that's impossible to just stop it. You have to have a tool chest Mm -hmm. of ways to retrain your mind and to take control. Uh, But it's not going to be in an instant because somebody told you to do it. That's right. And it does take time. And there's a lot of strategies that you have to teach along that. But but that is the goal, you know, not to feed into that lie that you have to do something, Um, not to feed into the lie that because you have these thoughts, you're a terrible person. If you see it in the lens of the OCD, then it should be able to alleviate that anxiety that's caused by it or the guilt that's caused by it. But it takes a lot of time. I say it's not like a light switch where all of a sudden you get it and they're like, oh, it's okay. It's just my OCD. It's not that easy. I usually refer to it more as a bridge. It takes time to get to the other side where you really believe it's OCD and you can shut it down quicker. To me, it sounds as though good counseling is critical in diagnosing OCD and treatment. How do you find the counselor that's best for you? So I would say, yes, I think that is a very important piece of it to find the right fit and the right qualifications for that. So my opinion would be to look for a professional that is experienced Um, my opinion would also be that that person be licensed just because then you know that they have met a certain amount of experience, education, and qualifications. Somebody that is knowledgeable and experienced in working with obsessive-compulsive disorder, ask them, how much experience do you have in this? I also think it's important for those people of faith to to find somebody like-minded in that because a secular counselor who doesn't have a faith isn't going to be able to relate to all of the guilt and some of the underlying issues. And we've seen how sometimes the faith and OCD overlap. So I would always recommend for people of faith that you're looking for a counselor who's also a person of faith. Uh, So, you know, we've talked about just how if it's unrecognized and undiagnosed, you can really go on a lot of rabbit trails that can really almost be harmful and and put you in the opposite direction. So I do think that experience in OCD is, is critical. 
You've been listening to a Help and Hope resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Mark Inc. exists to offer help and hope to the hurting. And we have numerous free resources on our website, markinc.org. If you go there, you'll find many stories that address life crises that are sometimes experienced in isolation, are often very difficult uh, long term, and often difficult for those people who love the person in crisis to know what to do. We hope that today's interview has encouraged you not only if you are struggling with OCD, but maybe you know someone or maybe you have a loved one that you're thinking, that sounds like my friend. I hope you'll share this resource with them. You'll share this story. I want to remind you that this is one person's story and there are many different directions we could go, but we believe that we've offered the help and hope that hurting people need through our discussion of OCD today. Again, you can go to markinc.org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you will find numerous free resources that offer help and hope to the hurting. If we can be of any help to you, you can contact us through our website, or you can call our office at 1-877-M-A-R-K-I-N-C. That's 1-877-M-A-R-K-I-N-C. My name is Sharon Betters, and it has been a privilege for us to be in your life for a little while, and we'd love to hear how this interview has offered help and hope to you.